Well, good morning to everybody and happy Christmas. If I didn't see you on the day, happy Christmas today. Merry Christmas. I always say happy Christmas. I was raised in a very Puritan household where merriness was a bad thing. Uh, so, sorry, Mary. We'll change your name to happy. happy. I say happy Christmas. That's just what I say. Well, it's lovely to be here with you this morning. And I say begin as you mean to go on. So from the, all of 2020, our repeated refrain has been Mark 1.15, the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Let's read it together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Throughout this year, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark and exploring with Jesus and discovering more about who he is as he gradually reveals himself, his authority, his teaching to his disciples. We did well. We got through eight chapters of Mark before we came to the Advent season. Next year, we keep on going. Maybe we'll get to the end of Mark by this time next year. So look forward to that. But the message of Jesus throughout the whole thing is this. The kingdom of God is at hand, and so people should prepare themselves. They should repent, they should believe, and they should be ready to meet God. And as we go through Mark, we discover more and more of who Jesus is, that he is the king. He is the king that God has sent into the world. He is God in the flesh. He is the son of God. It will be the last word about Jesus at the end of Mark, the son of God. We talked a few weeks ago looking into John's gospel. John says a similar thing. When he talks at the beginning of his story, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you were here a few weeks ago when we spoke about this, uh, the incarnation, the idea that the infinite God, the one who's way up there, comes down to a single point in history, a single point in time, as a single person. And so the infinite becomes finite. He becomes singular with us. Says he was with God in the beginning. We talked about the mystery of that and the difficulties of that and the challenges of that and the reassertion that through Jesus, through this word of God, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then we focus most on verse 14. The word became flesh. And the extraordinary reality of what that means, that the infinite God becomes meat. And walks among us on our world and in our time. The word became flesh. Turn to the person next to you, please, and look them in the eyes and say, the word became flesh. As we sang our Christmas carols this year, did you see any of those words, that idea reflected in our Christmas carols? We sang, hail the incarnate deity, God who takes on flesh. So John continues on through his beginning and incarnation in the flesh is what that word means. And it goes on and talks about, John goes on and talks, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. We talked about that as well, what that word means, one and only son. In the old English translated as the only begotten, translating the word monogenes, monogenes, one of a kind. Turn to the person next to you, please, and say, Jesus is one of a kind. He is the monogenes. He is the one who shows us what his father is really like. 
And we see this repeated throughout John's Gospel and in other places as well. When it says, God so loved the world that he sent his monogenies, his one and only son, his only begotten son into the world. He sent his monogenies, the one who shows us what God is really like. We'll talk about that some more in the future. But to come down to verse 18 of John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 18. John says this, no one has ever seen God, but... The one and only Son, the Monogenes, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. We'll talk some more next week about the idea that no one has ever seen God. But here this morning I want to focus on that last idea, that this one, this special one, this Jesus, this Word of God, the Monogenes, is the one who makes God known. Turn to the person next to you, please, and say, Jesus makes God known. Jesus makes God known. When we see Jesus, we see God as he truly is. We see his nature. We see his kindness. We see his compassion. We see his glory. We see his holiness. This one is the one who makes God known, has made him known. This morning, our main passage that we read in the kids' time is from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, so you might like to open your Bibles to that passage, and we'll talk about that. We'll go through verse by verse in a moment. When I was a child, uh, a very special person from my church, not from my local congregation, but from my bigger church, came to visit not even our town, but the next town over. And so we all went to the neighbouring church in the next town over to see this very special person. We never got that he was the leader of the Salvation Army in half of Australia. He probably had 400 churches he was responsible for and all the social centres and all that sort of stuff. The commissioner of the Salvation Army is his title. And the commissioner was coming to Kalbar. This was the most exciting thing I could ever remember as a small child growing up. The commissioner is coming to Kalbar. Probably wasn't that exciting, but it was pretty exciting for me. I'd never met a commissioner I had no idea what one, what one was. Uh, it was very exciting. The commissioner's coming. So we stopped our church that morning and went over to Kalbar uh, to meet the commissioner. And he gave a good message and the whole thing. And then afterwards, there was a special morning tea so people could meet and eat with the commissioner and get to know him. And partway through the morning tea, he disappeared. And everyone's going, where'd he go? Looking around. I wanted to shake his hand. I wanted to meet him. This big, important person who's come all the way from Sydney He's come to our little town. I wanted to meet him. And finally someone said to me, he's in the kitchen doing the washing up. And I went and looked in the kitchen and here was the commissioner in his, I think he'd taken his jacket off, but he still had his long white sleeves and his epaulets and stuff, washing up with the, with the ladies in the kitchen, washing up. And I've got to tell you, as a six or seven year old, that just blew me away. The idea that someone important and powerful and so significant that we had to travel half an hour or whatever to go and visit him would then decide to go and spend time in the kitchen doing the washing up. That just absolutely flummoxed me. I can't remember the man's name, but that example sticks with me to this day. And so I say to people, if you want to know who's in charge, go and see who's doing the washing up. If you want to know who the boss is, go and see who's doing the cleaning up. Go and see who's doing the serving. You want to know who the most important person in the church is? It's the lady who changes the toilet rolls in the bathroom. Because without her, we'd be in big trouble. That's the real boss of the church. 
That's the real example of the church. And here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes this point. He says to his readers, he says to his followers, he says to the people in Philippi, uh, he tells them that they should have the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. In your relationships to another, he says, have the same attitude, the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he goes on and quotes a song. We've read it already this morning, but he's quoting a song. He's quoting some words thought to be poetry, lyrics, or a hymn, or maybe a theological statement like a catechism. They're words, and if you've got your Bibles, you'll see that they're slightly out of kilter in your Bibles, like as if it's a psalm. That's how they give us the clue because, of course, it doesn't rhyme for us because we don't speak Greek. and It doesn't have the right rhythm for us because we add words here and there to make it make sense for us. But in the original Greek... This is a very a poem, a hymn, a song, something that would be recited with a, with a theme and a meter. There are words well known to the Philippians, written by Paul or maybe written by someone else, we don't know. But these are the words that are common to them and not a new idea, reminding them of something important. This is like me every so often stopping and saying, it's like in that song, and then we'll sing the song to remind us. This is a song of the early church. It's something that maybe they sang every Sunday. And Paul points it out to them to make his argument. He says, your attitude should be the same as this song that you know so well. The same as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. That word there, made himself nothing, quite literally says he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. He's not become obedient to death as in death is the king and now he's obedient to the death. That's not what that means. It means he's been obedient even to the point of dying. He's obedient to his father in his mission even to the point of dying. And Paul seems to add in here even death on a cross because that doesn't fit with the meter and the rhyme and it's not probably part of the words. Paul is a preacher and so when he starts saying a hymn, he gets excited and adds some extra words in there. So maybe even, even death on a cross is Paul getting excited and yelling over the song. Our own songwriters tell the same words in a song that might be familiar to us. The words of Charles Wesley. He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race, his mercy all, immense and free. For, oh, my God, it found out me. These beautiful words of Charles Wesley speak to us this deep theological truth that this Jesus left his father's throne and took off everything, stripped off all his power, all his majesty, all his glory, emptied himself, and Charles adds in there, of everything but love bled and died for Adam's helpless race. Therefore, this is representing the idea of the incarnation. This person, this Jesus, this word of God that John tells us in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Paul says here, 
He emptied himself of all and came and lived amongst us as a man. Verse 9, this this hymn continues, Therefore, therefore, because of all these things, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of this, This is the whole of the gospel message, that God himself came and lived amongst us, emptied himself and came and lived amongst us and died on the cross, rose from the dead and went back into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, glorified at the Father's side, his work of atonement complete. For us, this short passage, these few verses on the incarnation and the glorification of Jesus is amazing and becomes the whole point of the letter. This is the most famous portion of the book of Philippians. Anyone disagree with me? Who can quote a more famous part of Philippians? This is it for us. In the West particularly, we look at this part of the book and we go, this is what he's all about. But for Paul, this deep theological hymn was just the example of what he was trying to say. He's almost added it in as an afterthought. He says, you guys should follow Jesus Christ. You know the song. We talk about the song. This is what Jesus did. For Paul, the whole point of the story, the whole point of the incarnation, the glorification, the whole point of this is to remind us that we should live in the same way, that we should behave in the same manner. He said in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Behave the way he behaves. Sometimes at Christmas we talk a bit about the incarnation. We talk about Jesus and the amazing thing that God came down to live on earth. And Paul uses that amazing picture of the Christmas story and says, now you go and do the same thing. You might say, well, I can't do the same thing. I can't become an ant and preach the gospel to the ants. God came down to us. I can't go any lower than I am. But Jesus, but Paul says, this is how you should live. This is how you should live your life. We'll go back a few verses into chapter 1. He says to these followers of Jesus, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying to them, this is how you should live. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Paul is saying the way we treat each other, the way we behave amongst each other, the way we conduct ourselves is our witness to the world. He goes on and says, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul is writing this story from prison. He's writing this letter from prison. He's probably on his way to his own execution and death. And he writes to the church and goes, Guys, it's okay that we suffer. Jesus suffered. It's okay that we have troubles in this world. Jesus had troubles in this world. 
He says to them, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. And then he goes on to say in chapter 2, not only you've got troubles outside the church, he says, but look inside the church as well. Chapter 2, he goes on and says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he goes on and says, follow the example of Jesus in this. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he quotes that great hymn. It's the example that he's trying to say to them. If the Lord Jesus can strip himself and take off all his power and all his glory and come and walk amongst us and die on a cross for you and for me, then you and I should do the same thing. In whatever form that takes, whether it means taking off your fancy jacket and going doing the washing up, whether it means talking to someone who you normally wouldn't talk to, whether it means being kind to a small child or smiling at an older folk or going and visiting someone in the nursing home or in the hospital, going and doing something that's outside your own interests, this is how we show that we follow the Lord Jesus. And So we remind ourselves that the incarnation of the Lord Jesus is not just a theological point. Yes, it's an important theological point. It is vital to our faith that God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But more than that, the incarnation of Jesus is an example to us of how we are to live as well. If the Prince of Heaven could take off all his riches and glory and be born in a stable to show us God's love, then you and I can go out of our way take off our wealth, our success, our status, our glory, and care for those who have nothing, those who are nothing in the eyes of the world. If Jesus can step out of heaven and become flesh and die for us, then how much more should we be willing to give up to serve the people around us? volunteer to help clean the church or cut the grass or water the garden or have a cup of tea with a lonely person or visit someone in a nursing home or, or, or whatever. As we serve each other in the church and also serve people outside the church, we put the Christmas story, we put the incarnation into action. Wherever the king is, there the kingdom is. Jesus lives in us, and where we go, so does he. And where we serve, Jesus serves. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter eight, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, even the Son of Man, talking about himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus could have just stayed on his throne in heaven, had the angels come and worship him, but instead he 
took that off and came and walked amongst us. He gave up his great wealth, his great power, all the things he had to become flesh and dwell amongst us. He says it here. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. To give my life as a ransom for many. If we are to be followers of Jesus, we should do the same. We should take his example. I don't know what that means for you in your context or where you are, but for Paul, writing to the Philippians long ago, they lived in a very structured society where the father is the king of the house and the son maybe is next important and then there's the wife and the daughters and some slaves and some servants. Now a very strong hierarchy with the father at the top and the slave at the bottom. And Paul says to those people, don't be like that. He says to the father at the top, get in and help the servants. Get in and help them. Be loving to your wives. And he goes on through the rest of the book to talk about how people should love one another and serve one another and help one another. Not holding themselves up in some glorious form, waiting to be waited upon. But to get stuck in. To do the washing up. This is the story of Christmas for us. The incarnation tells us that we too should get in and do our part. Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve. And we should do the same. To give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is and what he represents. We thank you that as we read in John chapter 1 that he's the word made flesh. We thank you, as we read in Mark's gospel, that he is the son of man come to serve and give his life for many. As we read in Philippians, that he emptied himself of all. And so, Father God, this morning, because your word says that we worship him and glorify him this morning, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess that he is the Lord and every knee should bow. Father God, we thank you for Jesus this morning. Help us to follow his example. Help us to live as he lived. Help us to be a blessing and to serve others. At this Christmas time, at this end of the year, as we look forward to 2021, help us to go with Jesus, to live his way, to serve his way, to love his way. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Amen. If there are any questions this morning or anything I've said you'd like to speak to me about, come and speak to me. Uh, before we finish off this morning, I invite the...